you please pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you open the eyes of the blind and thank you for your great compassion. Thank you that you are here with us this morning. Would you please open your word to us that the places of our heart that are blind might begin to see you in a new light. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. So about this time, either, I can't remember if it's last year or the year before, I got a call from a friend of mine, a set of friends who I will call Bob and Sue. Um, they're farmers in Ohio. And Sue called me and said, Joanne, we have 13 lambs you need to come visit. So I had never uh, been on a farm during lambing season, so I drove out and I was given a very specific set of instructions. Um, basically, when when used, when the moms have babies, they get very, very protective. So what Bob said to me is, if you want to see or touch the lambs, what you're going to have to do is sit in the pen, be still, and after a period of time, they'll adjust to you. The mothers will come check you out, and then after that, then you can see the babies. Now, he has a real shepherd's crook, like the real thing, and he said, um, if one of the mother ewes uh, gets too near you, just bopper on the head between the eyes. I said, there's no way I will ever be able to do that. He's like, that's actually how the shepherds do it. So I actually, I have some proof for you of what actually happened next. I sat in my chair, and first, the mother sheep came and checked me out. So in this photo here, these are my knees. I'm sitting there, and you can, you can tell that she was right up in my face. I was a little bit afraid I was going to have to pull out the crook and bop her in the head. But she decided I was okay. And so after she backed up, this is who came next. And there are a few things in life cuter than one of these, except maybe 13 of these all at once. <laughs> and I have a, uh, let's see, I have a picture, uh, not of all 13, but... Um, this picture was actually taken this spring on my cousin's farm. My cousins south of town have a lamb farm, and these are there. Oh. <laughs> it really does inspire that. And my personal favorite, one of the lambs, occasionally a mother lamb, I mean, excuse me, a mother sheep who is a new mom will reject one of her babies. And that happened. So the family dog, uh, adopted this baby lamb. And if I were to have a picture for Psalm 23, I actually think that this would be it, um, of being adopted when, uh, when someone else is not able to shepherd you. So by now, it should be clear what our passage is for the day. <laughs> if it's not, I don't know what to do. <laughs> there is a, a question that's been a question for me in my journey with the Lord. And I, for those of you that have walked with the Lord for a period of time, you find out of your life experiences that certain questions emerge. One of the ones that has emerged for me is, do you, do you, Joanne, believe your life is led? Or do you believe that it's up to you to figure it out, that somehow what God wants for you to do is to be off on your own, struggling, and maybe somehow making sense of this mess? Or do you really believe your life is led? And I think that Psalm 23 gets to the heart of the question. It is, you know, I think probably the most uh, well-known of all the Psalms. 
it may actually be the most well-known of all the scriptures, really. There are people who don't know the Lord who know Psalm 23. And it uh, may come as a bit of a surprise to you, but I'm one of those people that has always struggled with this psalm. And the main reason I struggled with it is because before a year or two ago, I didn't have any contact with sheep. <laughs> if you're not a shepherd and you don't have sheep in your life, the um, pictures of this psalm can be very abstract. And uh, there are just other parts of scripture that I related to much more concretely. But for David, when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, that really actually meant something to him because he lived in this reality. One of the things that I learned about um, from my experience in visiting, um, visiting the farm out in Ohio is that um, shepherds can care for their sheep, but they aren't necessarily tender about it. <laughs> the whacking between the eyebrows was uh, just one sign of that. But also that crook with its, you know, with its angle on it is so that they can actually catch the sheep by the neck and pull them forward to do whatever needs to be done. And another reality of sheep that is very clear if you visit them in mass is that they are not cute and white unless they've just had a bath. Most of the time in the day-to-day, -day, um, sheep are they're getting in the mud, they're getting in the dirt. And I think uh, this actually gets a little bit to what Father Daniel was saying last week about how we have the pretty Facebook version of our lives and then we have the real mess. I think that's um, true for sheep, too. We have the, uh, the abstract, beautiful version of the white little lambs jumping in the field. And then there's the real version when you're on a real working farm of um, animals that are in the muck of it, that aren't particularly uh, smart or well-organized, and who need a lot, of, a lot of care, a lot of um, shepherding, for lack of a better word. So I want to talk about this passage, but I would like to maybe start by approaching it from a different angle and then come back and look at this uh, shepherd metaphor. And actually, there are two metaphors within um, Psalm 23. The second one, obviously, is less well-known than the first. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of scope out and talk about context. And then we're going to scope in and kind of think about this question of, do you believe your life is led? And what does that mean for us? So the Psalms in general are the prayer book of the Bible. So we in the Anglican tradition have the BCP that was compiled by Thomas Cramner. But that was not an original idea. His idea, where he got the idea of a prayer book, is from the book of Psalms which is the, um, probably the oldest prayer book that we use in our tradition. The, the book of Psalms, as we know it, is actually a collection of five books within it. So if you have ever noticed in your Bible, like for example, if you look between Psalm 41 and 42, it'll say book two, or book three, or book four, or book five. And in fact, at the, um, right before Psalm one, in the very uh, opening, you know, if, if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up and right under the Psalms it says book one. So this, the Psalms are an organized set of prayer books organized into five parts. And the organization that we have was put together during what we call Second Temple Judaism. So there was the first temple, it was destroyed when the people went to exile, and then uh, they came back to the land, rebuilt the temple, 
And this prayer book was put together during that time. So the five books of the Psalms, uh, they end at Psalm 41. The second book is Psalm 42 to 72. The third book is 73 to 89. The fourth book is 90 to 106. And the fifth book is 107 to 150. So our psalm is very squarely within the first of the five books of the prayer book. And each of the sections of the psalm ends with a doxology, which we know because we sing a doxology. Basically, it's a hymn of praise. There is a movement. They're not random groupings. You know, sometimes when we read the Psalms, if we're, if we're not thinking about the larger structure, if we're just thinking about the individual text, it can feel random. But it's actually not. There's a movement through the Psalms. And the fundamental pattern of this prayer book is the fundamental pattern of the Jewish story and of the believer's story. So book one and two, which are um, the sections that really we're dealing with this morning, they have the royal themes. They introduce Yahweh as God. They have the royal themes of David as king. Most of the Psalms in book one and two are written by David. And they talk about particularly God's care and God's protection, which is kind of obvious from, from Psalm 23. So the themes of this book are that Yahweh will look after us. Yahweh is the shepherd of his people. There are a few laments in these sections, but not many. Then you get into book three, which is the middle portion. And the book three is where most of the laments in the Psalms are. This is a time of pain, a time when for uh, the people of Israel, the Davidic covenant has been broken and they're going into exile. This is where you get Psalms like Psalm 78 that rehearse the history of the Jewish people and they're falling away from God and being sent into exile. And then you get into book four, which talks about the deep roots of spiritual heritage. Yahweh is again exalted as king. And this is where the Psalms of Moses are, which um, recite some of the Psalms 90 and 91, which are some of the, um, the great hymns about those who dwell in the shadow of the Almighty are covered by his wings. And then book five is looking towards triumph. The troubles have been overcome. And if you've read the end of the Psalms, they're all praise, 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 praise. You don't get one doxology, you get five chapters of doxology. So there is a pattern to this. It's kind of a U-shaped pattern. We start with the goodness of God. There's a descent into darkness and a coming back out. Now, if you've been in church for a while, that should be a familiar pattern because that's also the pattern of the Exodus. The Lord calls Abraham. There is um, connection and covenant. Then there's the going into Egypt. There's the darkness into Egypt. Then there is coming out through the Exodus into the promised land. That's also a familiar shape if you've ever been prepped for baptism. <laughs> there is the calling of the Lord. We descend into death through baptism. We are raised into new life. This is the shape of the Christian life that we see in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in the Psalms. So one of the reasons that this is important is because the Psalms is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Jesus himself prayed a lot of psalms. And in about two, two and a half weeks, we're going to read Psalm 22, which is the psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross. 
So we know that this prayer book was the prayer book Jesus used, and he quotes it quite a bit. The pattern that I've just described, that U-shape pattern, is the pattern that the Gospel of John highlights. It really, John takes great pains to talk about um, the glory of Jesus, starting with chapter one, the word became flesh, dwelt among us, we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Then uh, you get you know, into that, into the crucifixion narrative, which we will read in a couple weeks, where um, for John, the defining sentence of that narrative is, and it was night, which is when Jesus gives the, the discourse. He washes the disciples' feet, and then he's betrayed. That's his personal low point. And then, of course, there's the glorious resurrection and his actual resurrection. So John is showing us that Jesus's, Jesus as Messiah, his actual pattern is the same pattern as all the people of God. And Jesus is praying these passages, which means that there's a continuity between the, the Israelites, between the Lord, and between us. And this leads us to Psalm 23 itself. I want to read a quote uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, many of you know Bonhoeffer from his more famous works, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. But he wrote um, just a lovely little book on the Psalms. It's one of my favorite of his works. And he really draws out this distinction about the linchpin between the prayer book of the Old Testament and Jesus teaching us to pray is through Psalms like Psalm 23. So I'm just going to read you this quote about this. There is in Holy Scripture a book which is distinguished from all other book of, books of the Bible by the fact that it contains only prayers. The book is the Psalms. It is at first very surprising that there is a prayer book in the Bible. The Holy Scripture is the word of God to us, but prayers are the words of humans. How do prayers then get into the Bible? Let us make no mistake about it. The Bible is the word of God, even in the Psalms. Then are these prayers to God also God's own words? That seems rather difficult to understand. We grasp it only when we remember that we can learn true prayer only from Jesus Christ, from the word of the Son of God who lives with us, to God the Father who lives in eternity. Jesus Christ has brought every need, every joy, every gratitude, every hope of humanity before God. In his mouth, the word of humans becomes the word of God. And if we pray his prayer with him, the word of God becomes once again the word of humans. If we want to read and pray the prayers of the Bible, and especially the Psalms, therefore, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. So that's the question that we're going to be looking at for the last little bit of our time, which is what does Psalm 23 have to do with Jesus Christ? Most of us intuitively make some connections, but I think there's a deep richness in making those connections explicit. So in Psalm 23, there are two primary images about God. Obviously, the first one is shepherd. That one's easy. The Lord is my shepherd. The second one, I think, is um, less obvious until you've been with this psalm for a while, and that's in verse 5. 
and it's the image of God as host of a meal. Now, I really hope that sounds familiar, God as host of a meal. If not, by the end of this, this sermon, it will. But that's verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Both of these images were tied to deity in David's time. Cultic worship, both in the uh, people surrounding the Israelites and in a certain understanding of the Israelites themselves, used the imagery of um, God as shepherd, but also the idea that a deity could host a meal and invite people to, to eat with them. So these were common themes already in the culture when David wrote this psalm. So what we already know intuitively is that the message of this psalm is that it's all about the presence of God. Everything is about the presence of God. He is with us no matter what. And that's actually why this psalm is so often used as a psalm of comfort. If you've been to many Anglican funerals, this psalm is almost always read at funerals. Whether in plenty or want, whether in still water or in a valley of darkness, God is with us. And the other reason that this uh, psalm resonates with us so deeply is that it is describing the essence of discipleship. Discipleship is a two-way street. Our God leads us, and we follow where we are led. The verbs in this psalm are almost exclusively about God. There are only three verbs in here that are about us. So I'm going to start with the verbs about what God does, and then there's what we do. So... Um, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside waters. He restores. He leads me. He shepherds me. He comforts me. He prepares a table. He anoints. Those are the ones that the Lord does. The three that we do are we walk. Even though I walk through a dark place, we do not fear kind of a, a verb of what we're working at not doing, but it is still a verb, and we dwell. We walk, we do not fear, we dwell. And there's an echo of that in Galatians. There's a verse in Galatians I like when it's talking about Abraham and, it's Sarah, and Sarah, and it says, you know, you are their children if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So there is this echoing. We walk, we don't fear, and we dwell. Everything else God initiates and leads so even more, as we have made this tie between what David said and tied this to Jesus, we know that this psalm is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. And I want to unpack this a little bit. We aren't guessing or extrapolating when we say that this psalm is about Jesus because Jesus said that directly. The gospel lesson that we read today about the blind man, I really, I love the blind man story. It's actually quite funny, and it's especially funny in the parts that our, um, our processional book cuts out the middle part of the passage. But there's this lovely dialogue where Jesus heals this blind man. The authorities say, well, who healed you? He's like, well, I was blind. I don't really know, but I can tell you I can see now. And they're like, well, he must be a bad guy. And the guy's like, well, maybe he's a bad guy, but he healed me. And so there's this, this ongoing back and forth, and we, we skipped that part. But our reading picked up at the end, 
which is where Jesus then finds the man and says, let me tell you who I am. So Jesus says to him, do you believe in the son of man? And the blind man says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says, you have seen him, and he is, he is the one who is speaking to you. And then the, blind, the formerly blind man now says, Lord, I believe. And there's a, a lovely little phrase in verse 13, which Deacon Tex read for us. They brought to the Pharisee the man who formerly had been blind. Whenever I read that sentence, I think of the time period in which Prince had a dispute. The artist, the musician Prince had a dispute with his recording company, and he changed his name to the artist formerly known as Prince. This man has a name change from the blind man to the man who was formerly blind. And he is referred that way in the rest of the passage. And I do believe that's a bit of deliberate humor on John's part, because he's emphasizing this, that the, the Pharisees are critiquing a man who has had a change that none of us have ever experienced. But anyway, we're in our final verses. Jesus has found him. He says, Lord, I believe. And this, the man who was formerly blind worships. And then there are people standing around watching this. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we blind also? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But since you say you see or you understand, your guilt remains. Now, this is the interesting part. This narrative goes straight into chapter 10, which is a very famous chapter in which Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd leads out his sheep. And we can't read the whole thing because it's a whole chapter. It's 42 verses. But this is the passage in which Jesus, in response to a, a man who was in a form of lostness, Jesus comes to him and claims his sheep and says, I am the shepherd. You know my voice. You hear me. You follow me. And in verse 16 of chapter 10, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then this is the response. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus said, I've shown you good works. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it's not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, why would they get that conclusion from these statements? Because how does Psalm 23 start? The Lord is my shepherd. When Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd, he is also saying, I am the Lord. He's saying that connection from the Davidic covenant, this prayer that we all pray because we love it so much, that's me. And they understood that. They got that. And just to conclude that, uh, verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So this is one of those defining moments where Jesus is in the Gospel of John more and more clearly showing his identity. And one of the ways he does it most clearly is by identifying himself with the image of Psalm 23.
Now that takes us back to the second image in Psalm 23. The first one's about Jesus. The second one's about Jesus. The second image in Psalm 23 is God as the host of a table. And this should take us, if we've been in church for a while, straight to Eucharist. This is our table where we have bread and we have wine. And what, what are we doing in this? When, when we come in a few minutes and we um, take bread together and we take wine together or wafers together. I once had a, my priest say to me, it's not about the menu, it's about, it's about the symbol. But what are we symbolizing when we're doing this? We're saying there is a God who has a feast, has a t- table, And that God is inviting you to come and be in his presence and eat with him and dwell in his house and have all of the good things that come from that available to you. And that is exactly what Psalm 23 is saying. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, in the presence of the things that are still not right, the things that still aren't working well, the things that aren't going smoothly. This table is available in the midst of the darkness. And in that table, in the midst of all of that, there is an anointing with oil. For David, that was the anointing of kingship. But there are anointings for healing. There are anointings for vocation. There are anointings for, um, our, for, for whatever you need. There are multiple, in scripture, and multiple kinds of anointings. That's a different sermon. But the bottom line is that's also available at the table. And Jesus is the host of this meal. We know that, again, from the passage in John we're going to read in a couple weeks, where Monday Thursday, the final meal, he says, this meal is about me. So the conclusion of Psalm 23, the conclusion of Jesus as shepherd, Jesus as presenting a table we are invited to, is that goodness and mercy will chase us down all the days of our lives. This is one verse where our English translation does us a little bit of a disservice because it has the very sweet and kind, it shall follow me. But that Hebrew verb is a little bit more robust. It's surely goodness and mercy will chase me all the days of my life. So in light of this, I want to take Take us back just to the question I started with. Do you believe your life is led? Do you believe when you go through the dark valley that you're there because someone led you there and is walking you through it? Do you believe when you see the enemies that there's a table prepared uh, in front of you? There, it is, it's a great temptation in our day, um, especially, especially because many of us are highly educated. We get messages about, we need to figure it out. We need to figure out what the next step is. We need to figure out what to do. We need to figure out what God wants from us. And there are, there are places for discernment. I'm not against discernment. But the fundamental orientation of our lives is response to the presence of God, to this God who leads us and guides us and takes us not just into the dark valleys, but out the other side. The God who, in the midst of circumstance, is preparing a table before us. So I would just invite you this morning, as we come to the table, as we rehearse again the story um, 
of what Jesus did for us. To, to reflect on that question and, and um, respond to the Lord out of wherever you are today, of either, yes, Lord, I do believe my life is led. I'm, today, this morning, I'm sure of that. Thank you. Or, Lord, this is a morning where I'm feeling less sure. Can you reaffirm for me that this is your table and I'm invited to it? Will you be for me again the good shepherd who takes us by still waters and restores our souls and comforts us? Whatever you need this morning, the presence of God is here for you. And that is the essence of Psalm 23. It's why we love it so much. So let's, um, I'm going to just take a minute in quiet for the Lord to meet us, and then, then I will close us in prayer. I thank you, Jesus, that you were the good shepherd who laid down your life for the sheep. I thank you that you came and found us when we were lost. I thank you that um, when we get stuck in hard places, you come and, like the good shepherd, pull us out of those I thank you for the ways you care and tend us, and I thank you also for the meal that you invite us into. We honor your presence, Lord. We honor your word, and we thank you for the example of those who have gone before, who have shown us these truths and shown us how to walk in them. Thank you that our lives are led. We pray that where each of us is this morning, you would meet us in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.